Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Super Mercado Brothers Video Game Music Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the podcast where we share and discuss the very best in video game music. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm his brother, Will Brueggemann. We're so excited to do another episode spotlighting on an entire calendar year in the world of video games and video game music. And today's topic is the year 1992. It was a good year. This is a big one. This might not be one of the first years you think of when you're thinking of the best of video game music. And I will admit that I, you know, didn't think of it right away too. But going through this entire year, it is insane how much amazing video game music came out in this year. We have some huge titles that were released, just big games in and of themselves. We also have some beloved soundtracks, maybe some obscure games that happen to have phenomenal music. Really a crazy year. I would argue probably the best year for the Sega Genesis, probably the best year that system ever saw. Yeah. Um, But it was cool because you still had the NES kind of trucking along. And so you had NES, Game Boy, Genesis, Super Nintendo, TurboGrafx, all having really great years. Yeah, I think that really is interesting. Uh, And I'm just so excited because I think regardless of what year we choose, it's just sort of an inevitability of the video game industry that there's going to be enough great stuff to fill at least (laughs) an episode for this podcast. But it's also, you know, going back to the 90s at all, at this point, you know, this is over 25 years ago. So there's going to be that nostalgia element and hopefully an element of, oh, I've never heard of this game or, oh yeah, this is an obscure thing, but it did come out in that year. That's definitely true. And I remember it being hard with previous year episodes to condense a playlist, but I had such a hard time with this 1992 playlist. So many great soundtracks that I'm so sad we don't have time for. One thing that I'm doing at the end, uh, we do have a playout track, but then after that, um, it's going to transition to this medley of, I think, five or six honorable mentions, just small, like 30 second snippets of each of those because right. there were so many great soundtracks, you know, too many to do in an episode. So yeah, this is, an, this is a crazy year, a very interesting year uh, history wise, if you think about how the NES was basically in the process of kind of being discontinued, but they still were releasing games for it and, and great soundtracks. Yeah, the NES had an incredibly long lifespan span yeah. probably not as long on paper as like the atari 2600 right um but in terms of being in the popular zeitgeist and just having games even long beyond i mean there were still officially licensed nintendo games that were made when the nintendo 64 was like arriving yeah so that's insane so 1992 was also a really great year for arcade games um I don't know if I would say arcade game music. Probably the best arcade soundtrack was what you guys just heard. That was a little snippet of Outrunners, which came out for the arcade in 1992. That was Niagara Falls, composed by the wonderful Takanobu Mitsuyoshi. There were some some other really good arcade games that came out that year. So that's uh, a little snippet of that. Um, subset of VGM. The other systems we're going to see today, we're going to see Super Nintendo, we're going to see Genesis, we're going to see Game Boy, NES, TurboGrafx, even a PC soundtrack. And I think that's about it for today. So let's get into it. We have a lot of great music to get to. One of the games that came out in 1992 for the Super Nintendo was Dragon Quest V, composed by series composer Koichi Sugiyama. Let's take a listen to Friendly and Peaceful. Thank you. 
You guys are listening to Friendly and Peaceful from Dragon Quest V for the SNES, composed by Koichi Sugiyama. This game came out in 1992, along with everything we're playing today. Great way to start off the episode. It's going to give kind of a, a bounce to our step as we as we proceed through all this 1992 music. Yeah, this is very adorable, very pleasing, very happy music. The Dragon Quest series is uh, really remarkable, especially the work of Sugiyama, because he is a composer that has the orchestral symphonic pedigree. He had a tremendous amount of respect in Japan just as a musician and composer, and still does to this day. Um, But the fact that he was working on games... (laughs) back on the uh, NES is Mm -hmm. just staggering to me, and the Super Nintendo. Well, back Uh, in a time when there wasn't much respect at all when it comes to video game music, like, the fact that he was doing that, I'm sure a lot of his colleagues would be like, why are you doing this, Sugiyama? Right, yeah, especially because he already achieved a lot of esteem. I mean, you have Mm -hmm. people like Yoko Kano, and uh, to some extent, people that maybe came around like in the the 16-bit era that now work in um, Mm -hmm. uh, orchestral music, or people that did some work in anime that were also doing games, but Sugiyama was you know, he was kind of like on one of the composers on the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a really brilliant decision they had of, of hiring someone with that kind of expertise, because I think it was very important to them to have this uh, sophisticated musical palette in uh, Sugiyama's music is very neoclassical in a way that it sounds mm-hmm. like a lot of it sounds like music that could have been written hundreds of years ago. I mean, he has bits of maybe jazz or more contemporary harmony, but yeah, for the most for part, sure. There's actually another example of a film composer or maybe anime composer that we're going to hear later in the episode, even on the Super Nintendo. What I love about in this era when they got these big names is they would have these people compose music and someone else would be in charge of the actual implementation and the kind of the sound design and, and making this work on the system. And so it must have been really fun to get this music from Sugiyama, whether it was, you know, demos or probably just sheet music or whatever, and trying to, to put that together on the Super Nintendo. It just was a was a brilliant division of roles. The other thing that I respect, and I could almost say with certainty that in the West, this was not the case for game music, the fact that there was a separation between composer and like sound designer implementer, mm-hmm. where I think the reason often why we consider like a lot of retro Japanese game music better is because there was that division. There was yeah. someone whose sole responsibility, like for the case of Takashi Tateishi, yeah. you know, he was writing the music. He wasn't programming it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for a lot of Western people, it's like the reason why a lot of the styles were different is the people that were programming it were the people that were writing it. It was all one and the same. So there's advantages to that. But the disadvantage is that a lot of times the people creating the music aren't necessarily like expert musicians. Where right. in this case, you have this very well-trained, well-groomed, classical concert composer that's written for film, that's written for, you know, concert orchestras, that's writing for chiptune music, essentially, and then that's translated by a programmer. And I think it's just a very different kind of sound and Yeah, result. and that's one reason why so many Japanese soundtracks sound better than their Western counterparts is because there's that division of roles and everyone's specializing in what they do best. Wonderful. 
Wonderful. And we're going to move on to a nice counterpoint to that, um, a Genesis soundtrack that's coming from a little bit more of that classical orchestral world. And that's very rare to get that on the system. And it's the best series for that on the Genesis. This is Shining Force. The first game in the series came out in 1992. And this very first title was composed by Masahiko Yoshimura. And it's a great soundtrack. There's a lot of heavy use of snare drum rolls. <laughs> That's like the first thing I think of when I think of the first Shining Force score is just yeah. the snare drum all over the place. Great music, great melodies. Let's take a listen to a tune called Hikari no Gunzai, which is World Map 1 from Shining Force. Wonderful. You guys are listening to Hikari no Gunzai, which is the World Map 1 theme from Shining Force, which came out in 92. And this first score was composed by Masahiko Yoshimura, who did a wonderful job of establishing what the sound would be for the series. And Takanochi would pick that up and really run with it with what I consider to be maybe the superior score to Shining Force 2. Um, but yeah, this this is a, a wonderful Genesis score. Definitely breathed a lot of fresh air into the system. Well, what I think is so interesting about the Shining Force music and any uh, Sega Genesis or just honestly any FM music that has a more orchestral kind of classical, quasi-classical sound is that uh, it's... The music I so adore, but it definitely puts the hardware uh, in a place where it doesn't quite sound as uh, capable or credible as it does when it's doing distorted rock guitars. Yeah, definitely. And in fact, there's a lot of this composition, partially the way it's using the PSG too as well, but it kind of reminds me of a type of music that you would hear on the NES. You, oh, absolutely, you can have yeah. fuller harmony. There's there's more voices happening simultaneously, for instance, and more timbres with the FM sounds. But in general, it's like this kind of... Uh, straight ahead kind of square taking itself seriously classical composition Mm -hmm. would be right at home in the 8-bit era it sounds so quaint on the Sega Genesis but if you were to compare this to what could happen on the Super Nintendo it would kind of be no contest but what's interesting is then sometimes I feel like when the Super Nintendo tries to do rock guitars with their samples there's so often like these weird pitch intonation (laughs) sounds it's never as biting Um, so it's like those two consoles do have their strengths but i really have a soft spot for people on the genesis going for something different going well, it's for so something rare. more filmic or symphonic you don't hear it very often and really yoshimura and takanuchi one of the one of the few people that that did it successfully all right we're going to move on to a huge title especially when you're talking about video game music this is going to let you guys know how big of a year this was. This was the release of Super Mario Land 2, which was composed by Kazumi Tataka. We're going to play the absolutely iconic and classic Athletic. Here we go. Mm-hmm. 
tell you right video game music in this era, folks. This is Athletic from Super Mario Land 2 for the Game Boy, the original Game Boy. Released in 92, composed by Kazumi Tataka, still one of the best scores I think he's ever done. I love how it feels like Mario emotionally, um, and especially like a handheld Mario, but really it's kind of going in a little bit of a different direction than what we had heard before in the series, music by Koji Kondo. It's it's kind of going to the influences of Koji Kondo's music. Yeah. Dude, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think both Tataka and someone like Soya Oka uh, took a similar approach to this series, which is mm-hmm. they, they treated it with tremendous respect and they took the sort of styles and sounds that Koji Kondo was going for and they actually leaned even further into those influences where... Yeah. I think sometimes that happens um, now is music becomes sort of a pale copy of a copy, imitation of an imitation uh, in some of these Nintendo series where even if it's 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 nice music, it's uh, it's not really steeped in a specific style or tradition. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I mean, obviously, there's examples. I, I wouldn't say that necessarily with all the music in, like, Odyssey or Galaxy, for instance. Um, but I think what's so strong about this piece of music is it does have a really good melody, and it has kind of the rhythmic foundations of uh, ragtime, bluegrass, all the uh, kinds of, like, early American folk bluesy styles that Kochi Kondo was influenced. I was, you know, I was really marveling at the implementation, actually, of this particular yeah. piece of music and how it's so full and active with these few channels and i really didn't feel like i wanted anything else to be added it's very full arrangement well the other thing that he does uh with the arrangement the the instrument changing and also the the timbre and range changing because the the melody is split up kind of like a hocket which is again very impressive on the game boy but you have in a very high register Mm -hmm. and then like an octave and a half down it sounds like the band is trading off yeah yeah exactly so delightful what a great score. And then also when it goes into that B section, it does this sort of jazzy modulation and the last reprise or sort of tag of the melody is in a different key. And then we modulate back down to the original key at the loop point. It's very unique. It's a kind of move that um, I don't think Koji Kondo would ever do. He usually keeps things rooted within one key and he likes to disguise a loop. Um, but what I really love Kazumi Tataka's approach here. It, it's yeah. very respectful to the series, but it's also kind of pushing the boundaries and um, trying to earnestly approach something new. Yeah, this is a, a wonderful theme. What an amazing score. Let's move on to the NES. Uh, this is Mega Man 5. Now, fun fact, there were actually two Mega Man games that came out this same year. Four was early in the year and five was late in the year. We're going to play a track from five, which I really like the score too. This is composed by Mari Yamaguchi. Let's take a listen to Proto Man's Fortress Stage. Thank you. 
You guys are listening to Proto Man's Fortress Stage from Mega Man 5, a Mari Yamaguchi composition, and everything you're hearing today was originally released in 1992. So the original release date, most times that ends up being the Japanese release date. Sometimes it was released, um, you know, in multiple continents in the same year. Um, and we kind of botched one of our earlier episodes. I think it was 94, the episode we did on that year. Uh, we had at least one game that didn't actually come out in 94, so that was a little bit inaccurate of us. So yeah, I'm very confident that everything you're hearing today was first released in 1992. This, yeah, I really like Mega Man 5 a lot. I think it has a lot of attitude to it. Um, and although, you know, it might be going a little bit in some different directions for the series, one of my favorite things that Mari Yamaguchi did, her use of drums is outstanding. A lot right. of the score uh, feels like really authentic drum set parts where you hear a specific kick, a specific snare, and a specific hi-hat kind of sound. And so I think the grooves on the score are outstanding. Yeah, there's interesting, the when you look at the Mega Man series implementation-wise, there's a stark break. I feel like 1 and 2 sound very similar in terms of how they were implemented. And mm-hmm. I think they were both kind of programmed by uh, Yoshiro Sakaguchi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if he worked on the later games, but starting in Mega Man 3, the instrument design is very different. Yeah, um, You get a lot of fade endings as opposed to just like the hard cut decay there's it's interesting when you're working in an 8-bit system on the nes there's there's basically three different ways of having a note cut there's just a hard note eh, and then you stop it there's a fade which is what we heard in this track eh, and right. it kind of like it has almost like to me like a tinny sound as it gets quieter mm-hmm. and then there's also my favorite one which is basically you cut the note starkly um, to something like half or almost like a quarter its volume. And that gives it this kind of spacious, almost delay sound. And that's sort of like an, eh. And, yeah, that's um, great. Th- that's my favorite one. Um, but the original Mega Man and Mega Man 2 almost dealt entirely with these harsh note cuts. And I love the instrument design. And the sound is very classic and biting. But starting in Mega Man 3, it started to have this kind of like tinny fade sound. And the instrument designs used less vibrato. And it was just an all-around different sound. Yeah, by 1992, I'm really curious to know who actually did the implementation. Because, yeah, a very different use of vibrato and, and in a lot of ways, the soundscape is, is quite different, but uh, I think Mari Yamaguchi did a wonderful job with the composing of the score. Yeah, the composition's yeah, great. It's probably one of my favorites. And I do, one of my favorite little moments is the boop, 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 where there's that kind of odd metallic sounding instrument. Yeah, that not playing anything to. from 4 today, which I'm not a really big fan of that soundtrack. Let's move on to a TurboGrafx soundtrack. This is the only TurboGrafx um, entry that we're having today. There might be an appearance in our medley at the end so look forward to that but this is one of our favorite scores for the system bomberman 93 composed by jun chikuma who's the series composer let's play a very delightful irresistible piece of music planet quarry
It's so cool. God, I love this so song. So happy. You guys are listening to Planet Quarry, dancey and fun and kind of weird and quirky and just so many different things. Jun Chikuma came out for the Turbo Graphics and... You know, one thing that I really appreciate about this piece of music is it's really playing to the strengths of this system, and it's yeah. just great TurboGrafx music that's taking full advantage of what is charming about the system. I really like working with the TurboGrafx. There's a lot of abilities you have. One of my favorite things is you have full stereo panning control, literally full. You can have it down the center, you can have a little bit to the left, fully to the right, and she's really exploring that, you know, really kind of lush arrangement here. And it's so fun working with the wavetable. You can get so many different sounds, and you know, there's probably like five or six different timbres she has in this piece of music. The one lacking thing, in my opinion, uh, on the system is the bass. There's not really a way to have a good kind of low-endy kind of boomy right. bass sound. That's a lot that's of the square bass usually lacking. are very thin. Um, but yeah, what a what a killer piece of music. Yeah, I love the 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 groove of this song. It's just so in the pocket. The drum sound. It's mm-hmm. just so immediately dancey and catchy. And a, a lot of the detail in some of the grace notes in the mm-hmm. you know the little ornamentations so and all that stuff. Yeah, it's yeah. There's a, a really great color to it. This was always one of the hardest ones for us to perform in the Marcato band because the part of what makes a song so catchy is the precision of all of those notes. rhythms. Mm-hmm. And so. It, if they don't have quite the same attack sound, it, it loses a lot of the character. But I think my favorite moment in the whole song is when all of the elements cut out except from this this pair harmonized in fourths, which is quoting <laughs> the original Bomberman theme. Yeah. And then it goes into that incredibly catchy and dancey chorus that feels like something that would belong in like a Sonic game. You know, the oh, bam, that's bam, just the bam, best. Bam, 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 that's so good. Yeah. Wonderful job, Jun Shikuma. Probably my favorite Bomberman score in the series. Let's move on to the most popular game that came out in this year for the Super Nintendo. This is Super Mario Kart, composed by Soyo Oka. Let's take a listen to Mario Circuit. You guys are listening to Mario Circuit from Super Mario Kart, composed by Soyo Oka. A wonderful kind of Latin jazz fusion mix. It's just such an evocative sound, really pleasing. Uh, you know, kind of a fresh sound, again, for the series, similar to we talked about with Kazumi Tataka. It feels right at home for Mario, especially for this new Mario spin-off game at the time. Um, but yeah, going in directions that we hadn't really heard in the series, such an eclectic mix of instruments. You have some real-world instruments. You have some synth instruments. In some ways, I feel like the bass is kind of trying to be like a funk synth bass that you might hear like in 80s funk. Um, it's just very snarly. The one issue is sometimes it's hard to pick out the notes. 
<laughs> yeah, that's a bit of an issue. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Soyo Oka did so many things brilliantly in this score and stuff that stuck with the series. And one of my favorites is her sort of slash chord vocabulary. The yeah. sort of bum, 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 so bum, 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 You know, Will, she might have actually done the implementation herself on her games. Sure. I'm not yeah, positive I wouldn't on be that. surprised. Uh... I, yeah, I'm so, I just, I love this track, and I think it's so much more progressive than uh, its fame and notoriety would lead you to believe, but it really, mm. it's a great jazz tune. I mean, it's not simple, I mean, the so rhythms, good. the, the rhythms pitches, it's really interesting, challenging, and but it's great. not just like a simple little catchy tune. Uh, it, it's very advanced. It's definitely taking full advantage of the Super Nintendo, and I like how out there it is, but it's still infectious. It's not like yep. difficult to process or kind of like, uh, I don't know, discordant. It's it's really interesting and still kind of beautiful, but it fits the, the vibe of Mario Kart. It's fun. It has kind of that Latin influence, which definitely makes me think of, you know, the Mario series. I, I just think it's doing so many things right, and it's taking so many chances. And yeah, there's so much to love and respect about Soya Oka's music on the Super Nintendo. Anytime you get a Soya Oka release, it's a good year for VGM. Yeah. Let's move on to... Actually, I misspoke at the top. We have one more arcade entry on this playlist, which is great. This is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time. Came out originally in the arcade in 1992. And there's actually another huge arcade release that I think might be a part of the medley, so look forward to that. Anyways, we're going to play Sewer Surfing, which is probably my favorite piece of music off of Turtles in Time. It's just so much fun. This is composed by Mutsuhiko Izumi. Let's take a listen to Sewer Surfing. Amazing. You guys are listening to Sewer Surfing from Turtles in Time for the arcade composed by Mitsuhiko Izumi. What I love about some of these arcade chips of this era, this is one of the best chips. Uh, I can't remember what exactly this is, but some of these are combined where they have sample capability as well as FM synth capability. Right. And so basically yeah. it feels I love the like blend of that. a combination of Super Nintendo and Genesis. Totally. Yeah. I mean, the orchestra hit samples and some of the string sounds as well as the drums are really well sampled, but you get that FM bite yep. and you get that kind of charming, that like Sega Genesis sparkle. Do you know what I yes, mean? Yes, I uh, totally know what you mean. dream like, chimey, octave, harmonic mm -hmm. frequency sound. And that the snarly I, I brass. Just love. 
Yeah, it's it's a really great combination, and I think um, this is a case where I think the arcade version is better than the Super Nintendo version. I would agree. Definitely better than the Genesis version. I it's mean, possible I, that um, one of the reasons why I played this arcade original, well, it was the original, so it always makes sense for these episodes, but I think the Super Nintendo port was maybe a little bit later. Right. I don't know if it came out the same year or not. Well, the Super Nintendo one was uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 4, Turtles mm-hmm. in Time. Uh, and then I think the Sega Genesis, they didn't even get that. They got the nope. Hyperstone Heist. Which but actually, some of that music I actually say uses this. that the Hyperstone Heist might have been originally released in 92 uh, as well. So it's possible that all that came out in the same year. But in any case... Got to have a Turtles entry. Uh, it's always another good sign for a good year for VGM. Yeah, that's a really great sounding arcade track. It, it really just is. very much holds up, and it's a really fun game that still holds up. One of my favorite arcade games. Let's move on to a little bit more of an obscure choice. Uh, we wanted to play a PC entry in this year, and one of the best soundtracks for that platform in 1992 was Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis. A very ambitious and, and daunting expansive soundtrack for what we call the dream team which is michael land clint bajakian and peter mcconnell and i believe clint uh, was the lead composer on this score and you can really tell uh it's kind of it's a very cinematic sound. sound yeah they did a wonderful job of of in some ways taking the cues that john williams established for the movies but also adding maybe a little bit more comedy to it um, right. just just a really underrated game and score in my opinion let's take a listen to a piece of music that happens kind of midway through the game this is the car chase <laughs> You guys are listening to The Car Chase from Indiana Jones and the Fate of Atlantis, which came out for the PC, which was uh, using the Scum Engine. It's a LucasArts adventure game by the Dream Team of Michael, Clint, and Peter. Um, Yeah, this track is a great example of the sound they went for on this game. It's kind of filmic, kind of reminds you of maybe some of the harmonies and some of the emotions that you might hear in an indie movie. But yeah, it's kind of uh, cranked up to 11. It's kind of like a caricature version of that. Well, it's also coming out of the sound blaster. Which helps. <laughs> sounds. Yeah. Um, that kind of minor chord vocabulary of John Williams is definitely at play here. And some of the kind of film-esque counterpoint. And uh, it's definitely going for an orchestral sound. Um, yep. But I do think the score overall, it it's actually, it benefits from uh, being a computer music score. Because it can kind yep. of 
capture multiple genres and multiple moods and multiple styles simultaneously without kind of breaking the fourth wall without feeling like uh, this doesn't fit within a certain idiom Mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the advantages of chip music that um i i'm i've often been curious if like composers at the time felt that if they were like oh i'm actually lucky i'm writing something here because i can go from this orchestral sound to something kind of bluesy and fun Mm -hmm. without needing to completely change from an orchestra to a little jazz combo you know what i'm saying yeah everything's glued together so you have a lot more freedom and flexibility well let's keep the fm synth vibes going and we're going to move on to this week's track of the week The biggest release, arguably, of the entire year, and I would say definitely when it comes to video game music, the biggest release of 1992 was Sonic the Hedgehog 2 for the Sega Genesis. Masato Nakamura returned to compose for the sequel. Uh, It's kind of sad. He was actually originally slated to return for Sonic 3, but they couldn't come to an agreement um, with uh, the contract. I'm not sure if if it was a money situation or what it was. Um, but yeah, he composed the first two games in the series and some ways this Sonic two might be my personal favorite score he did. It's just so, so, so good. And it really reminds you of the music you heard in the original Sonic, but in some ways it feels like he's, he's even more comfortable writing for this system coming back. He knows exactly what he's doing. Let's take, listen to the first stage theme. This is Emerald Hill Zone from Sonic two. You guys are listening to Emerald Hill Zone from Sonic 2, composed by the wonderful Masato Nakamura. And it's so great because they brought back the exact same drum samples, that those iconic kick and snare samples that are so loud and, and hard-hitting. Um, and I will say that this implementation is absolutely outstanding. This is yeah. the best-sounding Genesis score by far. I mean, the mixture of the PSG channels with the FM... You know, just all the levels and all the different kind of interesting shimmering combinations. Yeah. It just sounds amazing. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I think the Sega Genesis never sounds better than it does on the first two Sonic games. The The drum sounds are my favorite of any yep. video game sound ever. I mean, I think They're the, the best. Sonic the Hedgehog drum sounds are unbeatable. And yeah, the instrument programming, everything is so tight, so punchy and solid, and it sounds like pop music. Like, it, there's nothing about it that feels limited. Yeah. And as much as I love Sonic 3, I love Sonic 3 and Knuckles, it goes for so much. The music is really innovative. I don't think I like the sound as much as I do. Like, it's not yeah, as no, comprehensively agree. polished. Uh, I think some of the music actually 
maybe climbs to higher heights. Like the first four stages, I think, are like a musical masterpiece. Yeah. Um, but in general, the implementation, I, I just don't think it's as tight and solid. And I think Masato Nakamura was very thoughtful about how he wrote every single one of these parts. The mm -hmm. bass lines are so melodic. The melodies are so melodic and all of the, the different kind of counterpoint and harmony. It's, it's really beautiful. This is a very interesting track. The harmonic progression is completely unique. I dare you to find another piece of music <laughs> that has the same chord progression. Yeah. But it's a kind of piece that rides that chord progression progression where both the intro and a melody kind of loop that progression for a long time and that repetition I think kind of almost legitimizes it in your mind's ear. Well, another thing that makes the progression feel more natural and logical is that incredible bass line with the repetition that the ideas of that bass line has. The bass line is, is in some ways like one of the main melodies too. It's like a dual right. melody. Totally. With, <laughs> it's just, it's so, so, so good. Well, the thing that I love about Masato Nakamura's music is you could recreate this on the NES and it would feel very full because the bass yeah. lines are so melodic and the melodies are so great and there's point. counter melodies and if you have all that going on you don't really need like the a pad kind of chord support you have all these interesting kind of melodies the timbres would probably suffer but the clarity yeah. of the composition is as strong as anything in the 8-bit era and I think that's what a lot of composers writing for the Genesis or the Super Nintendo um, miss out on is they're yeah, they, they're kind of taking for granted the amount of channels they can use and they're not writing with that same type of clarity. Well, that was this week's track of the week, Emerald Hill Zone from Sonic 2. Such an exciting release for this year. Let's keep the Genesis vibes going for one more track here. And we're going to move on to something very different that also came out the same year. Streets of Rage 2, composed by Yuzo Kashiro. Let's take a listen to Dreamer. Good. You guys listening to Dreamer. This is composed by Yuzo Kashiro from Streets of Rage 2, which also came out in 1992. God, his Streets of Rage soundtracks are so impressive. You know, really going for a sound and really nailing a sound that had never really been heard on the Genesis. No one else was really ever able to capture this. It's really authentic 90s dance music. Um, what I love about this track is the melody is, is actually pretty catchy. Um, and it's it's maybe more playful and less dark than most of the rest of the score. Yeah. But it still has that, that really strong dance groove. And so for me, it's always been one of my favorites. 
Yeah, I love. There's also some like altered dominant chords that are mm-hmm. have really nice jazzy voicings. I really also love that the intro kind of borrows from the Phrygian mode. Yeah, that you have these kind of two minor chords, you know, a whole step apart. It has a darkness to it, and it, it evokes Very the, dark, the rest yeah. of the score's darkness. Yeah, Streets of Rage two in general. Um, maybe less fun than right. Streets of Rage 1. Um, definitely darker and sometimes more dissonant. Well, I feel like if I had to describe the musical sound of Streets of Rage, the intro of this track does everything that you need. The percussion, yeah. the groove, the and then mix with that kind of Phrygian minor sound. That's like, to me, that gets me the sound of Streets of Rage just within that. And then that melody is so catchy. My favorite part is the... Oh, that's so good. It's one of the best melodies Kashiro wrote, I think. Like That sounds like a NES kind of Capcom melody. What a classic. We're going to move away from the Genesis, move to a huge title for the... Would this be technically Super Famicom, <laughs> Will? Yeah, yeah, it would be. This is Final Fantasy V, composed by Nobuo Uematsu. Let's take a listen to a piece of music that maybe we haven't played quite as much as ahead on our way, trying to mix things up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I mean, here you today. might call this Final Fantasy two and a half if you live in America. <laughs> 2.5. Let's take a listen to Tenderness in the Air. is a real master, isn't he? This is Tenderness in the Air. I wanted to change it up a little bit. This is from Final Fantasy V, one of my favorites of the score. Somebody mentioned on Discord, and I totally agree, that really each of these um, Super Nintendo Final Fantasy scores do deserve their own spotlights, and eventually we will definitely have to get to that, because I think we did an episode on 4, 5, and 6, but we'll definitely have to do individuals as well. Um, what I love about this piece of music, it's a gorgeous melody, very emotional, but it almost feels like it's starting out in the 8-bit tradition because you just have a melody and a supporting line, mm-hmm. which happens to be on the harp, but this could totally exist on the NES. And then eventually it feels like it's moving into the 16-bit well, era where the strings It's also come such in. a harmonically colorful melody with all its chromatic, you know, shifting and sliding. Uh, it really characterized the progression. I will say this type of a song, like a really emotional, romantic kind of ballad, is my favorite type of music for the series. Yeah, I agree. And this one, I think, is probably one of the most successful. A lot of Uematsu's music has sort of an awkward 
asymmetry to it Mm -hmm. where a melody will kind of stop in its tracks and then restart or there'll be an awkward chord that doesn't feel idiomatic but this one is just absolutely gorgeous from start to finish every chord turn is not only satisfying but it's like so unbelievably beautiful the melody is one of his strongest yeah i i think you put your finger on it carl well one of the things that that just knocks me out about Uematsu is every once in a while he composes a melody that is so good that it feels like it's always existed. And that's definitely the case with Tenderness in the Air. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I, he has a really interesting mind. It's, he's almost, <laughs> I, I think of him as like the Rivers Cuomo of video game music. <laughs> Not everything he makes I love. In fact, mm-hmm. some of it I really don't like. But when he's on, it's like the most pure, gorgeous, no one else magical like thing in the world. Mm-hmm. And it, he, yeah, he has a really unique approach and a very special mind. It's like only he would come up with the things that he does. And yeah, he's an absolute treasure. Well, there you go. One of the biggest releases on the Super Nintendo of 1992. That was Final Fantasy V. Let's move back to the NES. Uh, This is a score that might be a little bit, or at least a game might be slightly more obscure than some of the heavy hitters we have today. But I really love this score. This is Gargoyles Quest II which was composed by Yuki Iwai. I believe the first one was on the Game Boy. The sequel was on the NES. This is such a good piece of music. It's really mysterious, and it kind of has some of those desert cliches that you might expect, but it's surprisingly catchy, and I really like this one a lot. Let's take a listen to Desert Sitem from Gargoyles Quest II. Amazing job, Yuki Awai, known for her wonderful work in the Mega Man X series. She's such a good composer. This is Desert Sitem from Gargoyles Quest 2. Always have a hard time with that word. Um, yeah, I really like this a lot. Will was saying that this could fit in the Castlevania series. It's it's very creepy and kind of progressive, especially that final section. It's just really badass. I almost I could hear that with like a metal band or something. Yeah, the use of Hemiola at the end in a sort of classical way but then it also ends up sounding yeah, super like rock progressive this like mixed meter feeling. One thing that I love about the A section is it's a straight up tango. Right. Yeah, it, 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 this track is so interesting, the rhythmic feels. This track has so much potential to be remixed, especially by yeah. a guitar band. I feel like there's so oh, much yeah. you could do here. Oh my yeah. god, this is so good. A surprising choice maybe to include. Definitely not as maybe popular or as beloved as maybe some of the things that were left off, but god, I love Gargoyles Quest 2. That's great. So good. All right, let's move on to a huge release for the Game Boy. You know, 1992 saw some some amazing releases for this system. This was the introduction of a new character and series, mascot in some ways for Nintendo. This is Kirby's Dreamland. The very first game with this character and this was com- this was composed by Jun Ishikawa and there was another Ishikawa soundtrack that I had to skip 
uh, for this week, and it was that Arcana, that wonderful Super Nintendo score that I brought in for show and tell. Um, so the same year he did that, he also did Kirby's Dreamland and knocked it out of the frickin' park. Let's play the ending theme from this Game Boy game. Here we go. I love that ending of the loop. So good. You guys are listening to ending from Kirby's Dreamland for the Game Boy, composed by series composer Jun Ishikawa. I love so much about this score. I mean, these melodies that, that he composed are just iconic and classic and so adorable. They go hand in hand with the character. And if not for some of these original melodies, I mean, I don't think we would have the same feelings, the same warm and fuzzy feelings toward this pink blob. I mean, these just the music is, is incredible for Kirby's Dreamland, And the implementation is, is interesting. Something about it feels, like, in a good way, it feels very primitive, I guess I would say. Yeah, I, I, I think of any Game Boy game, I would have to say this has the most comprehensively flawless aesthetic. And I think the proof of that is that this sound has been what any composer in the Kirby series has been chasing for decades. <laughs> like, on the God, Super Nintendo, true. they would sample these 8-bit sounds yeah, because th- it was like there was something perfect about it that they couldn't quite recapture. It's just and adorable. The style of the music, the, the timbres, everything about it is flawless. Not to say that it's overly complex and really pushing the envelope, but again, it's just so... It's such a comprehensive aesthetic. It's just a really beautiful sound. It's plucky. It's very, it very much characterizes the world, the game, the character. It's, it's as close to being perfect as I think it could ever be. (laughs) What's so crazy is, you know, this is the first game for this character, first game for this series. I'm really, I would almost love a documentary on the making of this. And how much conversation was there between Ishikawa and the other designers to go for this sound? And he's so, con- it seems like he's so confident and he seems like he already knows exactly what the series should sound like. Right. Yeah, he's drawing from a lot of like European folk classical music kind of influences. A lot of this music sounds very much like simple child piano etude kind yeah. of things, but it has this... I don't know, almost like Balkan, even like Eastern European kind of, you know, especially like when you think of, yeah, almost like Russian folk. Yeah, there's that Russian or Eastern European, even like Hungarian, Romanian, all that kind of that stuff, that that folk music sound. But there's something so timeless about Kirby. And I think of any series, it's so impressive at just how consistent it's been. The musical style, yeah. it's like for the recent Kirby games, it's still kind of doing this. And you, you get to have... Uh, really a small handful of composers put their thumbprint on the whole series. It's a very consistent 
you know, aesthetic all the way through. And that's something that when a game can do that, it's owed something because I love yeah. Super Mario Brothers. I think it's it's outstanding. I love The Legend of Zelda, you know, those kind of classic early titles. But there's something about Kirby's Dreamland where it established this specific sound that's been treated as sacrosanct throughout the entire series in a way that, mm-hmm. yeah, Mario established kind of the melodic style or some of those themes became came indelible but as the series grew it kind of found its musical footing in something a little more specific and same with zelda or final fantasy or any series that's long lasting it changes i will say kurt Kirby fans and Kirby music fans are the luckiest fans in the world because you just yeah. keep getting the same thing in a good way. You get more of the same type of right. sound and emotion. Amazing. Let's move on to Super Double Dragon, which came out for the Super Nintendo, not surprisingly. This this score was composed by Kazunaka Yamani, and this is a classic piece of video game music that, for whatever reason, I don't believe we've played on the podcast yet, which is a crime, and so we're going to play it now. This is Mission 4 from Super Double Dragon. I love this one. Here we go. Anyone who's looking for the linkage between pop music and VGM of this era, look no further than Mission 4 from Super Double Dragon. I mean, that groove is is so catchy, and it's pop. It's total pop, kind of late 80s, early 90s. Well, this and is the marriage by... between the kick drum and the bass is just, yeah. oh, it's so it's, groovy. It's outstanding. This is composed by Kazunaka Yamane. It has one of the best grooves <laughs> of this era really outstanding tune as well great melody yeah will was saying that when he first heard there's this kind of classic old school remixer we used to like paragon x9 back in the day um she did a remix of this and uh will always assumed it was a mega man tune <laughs> yeah there's the like there's something about that it's just so capcom-y you know absolutely love this one i can't understand why we had never played it on the podcast before um one thing that's interesting is if it was yamani who did the implementation whoever did the implementation you can tell that they were kind of approaching things a little differently it doesn't remind me of a lot of super nintendo music um the samples and the choices um yeah it's just kind of a unique sound very 
again, kind of early. It reminds me of early Super Nintendo music when you had people that were trying different well, things. It reminds me of a lot of NES music. It's like yeah, that exactly. kind of 80s pop rock sound. And if it reminds me of any Super Nintendo thing, it makes me think of like Mega Man 7 or Rockman and Forte. What I love about like early, and, and I don't know if you could consider that, well, yeah, it's it's fairly early Super Nintendo music. People hadn't really established what the sound is like the traditional sound is going to be like when you listen to a score from like 94 95 96 on the system it's it's a lot more consistent and they really figured out okay this is how we make things sound good and this is the types of samples that work whereas early on like there was a lot more diversity and people were taking a lot of risks and um, yeah this this is a really cool score what a killer piece and actually i'm looking back here we did play this tune a long time ago way back on episode 22 which was show and tell volume three so ah. we have played it before but it's been a while let's move back to the sega genesis to kind of an obscure game but uh, a really great soundtrack in this particular piece of music is one of the Genesis's best, in my opinion. This is Alicia Dragoon, Stage 1-1, which is a classic to me, and it feels like a classic to the podcast. We have a few composers here. We have Nobuyuki Aoshima, Mamoru Ishimoda, and Yoko Sonoda. Let's take a listen to Stage 1-1. <laughs> You guys are listening to Stage 1-1 from Alicia Dragoon, composed by Aoshima, Ishimoda, and Sonoda for the Genesis. Yeah, and already this really feels like, oh man, this is a great year for the Genesis, and we haven't even gotten to one of my favorite Genesis soundtracks, which will be next. Um, yeah, I, I really like this track a lot. Um, it is very unique for video game music and for Sega Genesis music. It's quite evolving, and there's so many different sections. There are times when you feel like it has looped, but it actually hasn't. Uh, a lot of surprise. It's it's this great mix of kind of like folk elements, folk music elements, mixed with kind of that VGM paint, which is going to be kind of eclectic and kind of a fusion of a bunch of different sounds and styles and traditions. And it yeah. comes together in such a natural way. Yeah, that kind of Dorian melody with the highly ornamented kind of figure. Yeah, kind of a flute. That feels like something we've heard before. But yet you also have this sort of prog rock built in fourths vamp. Nothing about this track ends up feeling cliche because of the subtlety of the arrangement, the way all the elements are mixed together. It doesn't feel like a hodgepodge of cliches. It's really quite strong. And if you guys are hearing, you probably already heard it, that 
This has such a long form, and at about 1 minute 45 seconds, the drum groove completely changes and they go back to one of the main melodies, but now it has an up-tempo, double-time, rocking groove. And that is such a rare thing where it feels like you, you're kind of, you've heard the tune, um, but then they're still changing it up and it feels like it's being performed. And finally, they get this loop. Uh, I think the loop is probably not till close to three minutes, uh, the actual full loop of, of this piece of music. So what a delightful track. Yeah, it's really outstanding. Um, I think my favorite thing about it is just the very beginning. The yeah, it just sets up such a great emotion. It gets you yeah. so invested. It's even a great just to, introduction. Into the piece of music. All right, let's move on to one of my all-time favorite scores for the Sega Genesis. Uh, the fact that this came out the same year as all the other classics. Man, 1992 was a banger. This is Super Fantasy Zone. Uh, composed mostly by Naoki Kodaka. I think he used some some earlier series melodies here and there, but most of it was original music, and he just nailed the sound of Fantasy Zone. Uh, this is Fresh Melon. I really want to do a spotlight one day on <laughs> this score just because it's it's a podcast classic, and it's one of my all-time favorites. Or it's and- a podcast classic. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's just so much fun. I think we would just, I don't know, our... Um, our endorphins would be off the charts if we if we did that episode. Let's take a listen to Fresh Melon. God, how can you not how can you not love this? This is Fresh Melon from Super Fantasy Zone composed by the wonderful Naoki Kodaka. Such a different sound for him and he just nailed this. It's so happy. There are just enough kind of jazzy turns and and things about it that make it not feel completely like textbook or cliché. It's music that I think would be really good for kids, but it's also good for adults too. This is one of my favorites. Yeah, one of my favorite moments is when you have the sonic catching rings instrument. Right. That's the shimmering Genesis magic. One of my favorite uh, techniques in chip music is when you have a a fast scalar run, but rather than it being legato, um, there's like separation and attack (laughs) between each sound, which is something that you could never get in an actual instrument and it's that uh, that kind of it almost sounds mechanical because right. there's this choppy attack to every instrument sound now it's guys great... i mentioned that it was really hard to pare this list down i'm going to give some honorable mentions now these are not the ones that are included in uh our ending medley which i will near the end of the episode i will mention those so not counting those and not counting everything on our playlist here's some other amazing scores that came out in 1992 just to name a few Mario Paint, which is a really <laughs> cool score. Uh, Splatterhouse 2, Shining Force Gaiden, which was, a, I think, a Game Gear score, actually by Takanochi, which I really like. 
Final Fantasy Mystic Quest, which um, kind of a B Final Fantasy game, but I think has a great score. Super Adventure Island, Contra 3, Air Zonk. Um, so many good scores that came out this year. So like I said, look forward to our medley, which we're going to play you guys out with, which has a taste of, of some more amazing scores. Let's move on to the NES and, um, kind of a silly, maybe some people might say a silly choice to include. Um, it's Mick kids, <laughs> but we absolutely love the soundtrack to Mick kids. It's such a cool example on the NES, uh, a Western composer, Charles Deenan, and his approach to the system is, is very unique and fresh. Just great music. Let's take a listen to level theme two from Mick kids. so good you guys are listening to level theme 2 by charles deenan from mick kids which was a licensed game <laughs> for mcdonald's featured uh characters mac and mick who venture into the fantasy world of mcdonald land <laughs> why and is the music so gosh darn great i don't know but charles deenan knocked it out of the park dude i, I want to go score. i would go into mcdonald's a lot more if they blasted this theme <laughs> over the loudspeaker when you come in and be like what's up you're at mcdonald's <laughs> and if they dress like early 90s it's so cool i love it i love the it's programming funky. here the um, way he does the bass is one of my favorite techniques where you have this quick portamento drop mm-hmm. down so it almost sounds like the bass is going through puberty and has kind of a voice crack. It's so funny. But yeah, the implementation kind of has a lot sound. more in common with like the demo scene and kind of chip tuners of that kind of scene right. than the most NES music. Um, but yeah, it's just a great groove and kind of a nice little melody too. It's kind of weird, yeah. but it's oddly catchy. Well, and I, I just, I love progressive NES music a lot more than like other demo scene stuff because I'm just not a big fan of the sound of the Commodore or like a lot of the Amiga or the the PC stuff. It just, it's some yeah, you more like the NES snarly biting sound. The NES is great. There's only one triangle. I mean, you just, hmm. there's something so pure about the way all the overtones react to each other. I love the three part writing i just it's the per to me it's the perfect amount of well, what, limitation well what's so cool about doing this year 1992 is is we're seeing some really advanced uh use of the nes sound chip from people that maybe didn't have an opportunity years prior and so someone like charles dean and what he's able to do and the sound he's able to get on the nes man it's so different than what came before and so it's kind of a cool year to look at in that way let's move on to paladin's quest which is probably an obscure choice, but it has an amazing score, and you would know that because it's composed by Kohei Tanaka. (laughs) Maybe the first, one of the very first things he ever did in video games. Uh, This is a, a wonderful piece of music called Beyond the Millennia. Here we go.
What a killer melody from Kohei Tanaka from Paladin's Quest. And I was looking at some of the credits of this game. And yes, there was a different person solely in charge of the implementation. And so it must have been so fun to get this music and have to input it on the Super Nintendo. Oh my gosh, it, it's this is straight up film music. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, it, it's not... <laughs> It's not the caliber that you typically expect for video game music. Well, these authentic jazz chords, uh, especially in the final section of the melody, really reminds me of Taxi Driver or Bernard Herrmann or something. Like, it has this very mystical and I could hear uh, that. smoky film noir kind of sound in a lot of these, like, tritone subs. Like, one of my favorite sounds, I, I like to think of it as, like, the four minor chord over the flat seven, but you could also yeah. think of it as, like, a flat seven dominant seven chord uh, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense um to me <laughs> but like the, there's that kind of surprising sound when you're expecting to go from the major four to the minor four or the like two minor seven flat five but then you hear that there's something i love about seven. when i uncovered these old kohei tanaka scores you kind of have to dig because the crediting isn't always there um but He's the same. I mean, this is the same person we fell in love with, you know, in Gravity Rush and getting to hear this music on the Super Nintendo. Oh, man, it's such a treat. Well, guys, we're going to play you out. The actual playout, which you'll hear first, is another amazing Genesis score that I love. It's Devilish. And we're going to take a listen to Stage 5 Seaside, composed by the wonderful Hitoshi Sakimoto. A really beautiful score. And after that, we're going to go to our medley, which uh, features six more brief tastes uh, from amazing 1992 games. And those are Trip World for the Game Boy. Great score. X-Men for the arcade. Absolutely classic. Thunder Force 4 for the Genesis. Soldier Blade for the TurboGrafx. Land Stalker, we finally get some Takanochi for the Genesis, and then Gimmick, the wonderful game for the NES, featuring some really great use of samples. So that's about it. Will, what are your thoughts on 1992? I really was impressed with this year. This was a really fun playlist, very eclectic, as I think any year in games would be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love doing these episodes because they're a broad enough topic that there's really nothing linking all of these pieces together other no. than that they were great and that they yeah. came out the same year. It's a killer year, a little bit underrated. It's not, again, not one that I or maybe others would think yeah, of. I mean, I don't know how often people are talking about years as like a great thing. So, but if a year could be underrated, 1992 has my money. I definitely have heard people talk about it. I know, I know that like 94 is is something that people say. 88. We should, we did an episode on 88, and I know that's. That's another one I've heard. Obviously, 85, just historically from, you know, the NES and everything. Um, yeah, 92 for whatever reason. Maybe maybe it is more me. I'm I'm such a kind of like a nerd when it comes to years. I would um, like to do like 1996 or something. That would be really fun. Five or six. The one thing, the one six problem Six would be cool because you could do uh, a lot of N64 stuff. Six would be really cool. And there's a lot of Super Famicom games and I guess Super Nintendo games that, that still came out that year. So yeah, that would be a fun one to maybe do next. All right, guys. Enjoy this tune from Devilish followed by a brief medley. That's about it. My name is Carl Brueggemann. And I'm Will Brueggemann. Have a great week, everybody. Peace out. Peace out. 